Right, welcome to the Diverse Church Podcast, a conversation to help you multiply disciples and churches. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors at City Light Benson Church, and I get the privilege of leading with this dude right here, Pastor Elvin Torres, hey who's on the show. And uh, we have a special guest today, Evan Marbury. Um, hey, Evan, good to have you. Hey. Just to let you know a little bit about Evan, Evan grew up outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, he graduated from Mizzou with a degree in psychology, uh, then went on to earn a Master's of Divinity and a Master's of Arts in Counseling from Covenant Theological Seminary. Uh, he is currently pursuing a Doctor of Ministry in Counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Evan joined the Army Reserve as a chaplain for over four years and now serves as a pastor at Christ Central Church in Durham, North Carolina. Evan has been married to his wife, Katrina, since 2013, and they have one daughter and a baby boy on the way. Congratulations, Evan. That's fantastic. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to have you uh, on the show. Uh, out of out of all of us, you're easily the youngest but most uh, smartest person uh, now on the conversation, uh, most educated at least. Uh, but I've enjoyed getting to know you from afar. Uh, I've been trying, just to let our listeners know, I've been trying to recruit you to Nebraska for the last couple of years now, uh, but you won't come. I don't know what you have against <laughs> Nebraska. It's an awesome place. Yeah, we got we got like cows. And we got cows, and we got, we got cornfields, cornfields, and cows. Man. And we also have some chickens. Yeah, at least in our backyards, we have chickens. Yeah, we have chickens. And when the wind blows just right, mmm, cows. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, maybe someday we'll get you to come up to Nebraska because um, you're a fantastic leader. Uh, love what you're doing, man. Uh, love that you're a pastor now and uh, being used by God in that way. Uh, so let's just start with your story, man. Uh, so you grew up outside of St. Louis. Tell us about uh, just your upbringing, childhood, and then how you, um, how you, how you just the journey from, uh, from that to being a pastor now. Uh, yeah, I'll try to be concise. And you know, thanks for, for having me on the, the podcast. And uh, our, our friendship has developed in beautiful and random ways, Tyler. It's, it's been great to get to know you even you know, halfway across the country now and hearing how ministry has developed for you and for great things about uh, Elvin and Jameson and uh, my boy Willie. Uh, so um, Midwest is it is part of my context and my story and it's close to my heart, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll let y'all have the cows and the cool breeze. Um, but I was raised in St. Louis for most of my life. Well, right outside of St. Louis for people that are, that are more familiar with the area. Uh, I was raised in O'Fallon, Illinois, or about 20 minutes from downtown St. Louis. Uh, and I grew up in a family that uh, value going to church, uh, but didn't really emphasize Christian living. And so I became a Christian uh, the summer before my freshman year of high school. I just heard the gospel for the first time. I was at a youth conference and um, really uh, understood at that moment that I wasn't a Christian, needed to be. Um, and so I went into high school, and I tell people I was severely under-discipled because uh, I was a pretty typical teenager uh, in terms of partying and all that uh, but I really 
loved the Lord and wanted to love the Lord. I just wasn't sure what that looked like. Uh, but when I got to college, that's when I got a better idea. So I got involved with a ministry called the Impact Movement, which is a ministry connected to Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, some other ministries as well, and got to see uh, other people my age really wanting to live out their faith. And uh, I was one of those students that like majored in campus ministries and did class as an extracurricular activity. Like I spent all my time doing campus ministry stuff. And by halfway through college, I realized I want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, and so I started thinking about what I wanted to do uh, after I graduated college. I went into to, you know, major in psychology to study law, but realized I just wanted to serve Jesus and his church. And so that process, that journey is a story in of itself, but I landed on going to, to seminary and feeling called to the church and uh, ended up at Covenant Seminary. And one of the big reasons for that was, I mean, a friend of mine had applied and got in and he's the one that told me about it. Um, but it was back home and close to my family and close to familiar friends and, and church and ministry. And so I was glad to go there and uh, it, was, it was a good experience. Um, and the journey of being in seminary, clarifying calling, that took several years, and that's maybe a story for another day, but uh, through a lot of, uh, you know, First Timothy 3 talks about uh, one of the qualifications for an elder being sober-minded. I feel like I needed some, some time to really understand the, the sober-mindedness needed to be in pastoral ministry. Um, and so, by God's grace, I've been allowed to, uh, to do that and Live in, live in Durham now for two years. And a big part of that was because uh, Durham, you know, there are certain cities in the country that are really good for, are known in the black community as good for black families. And uh, Durham area is, is one of those cities and, and it just worked out for us to be here. So we're glad we're here. Yeah. Is your church uh, multi-ethnic or multicultural? Kind of what, what's the, the makeup of your church? Yeah, so our church uh, wants to be uh, better at being cross-cultural. It's part of our mission. Uh, I'd say we're about 85% white and 15% other um, people of color. Um, and our church is about seven years old, so a new church. Um, but we're really trying to, to pray through and strategize on how to really be uh, a reflection of, of our community, which is a very different demographic. What's your neighborhood makeup? It's about 50% white, 45% black, and 5% other folks. And so Durham has a rich history of uh, black heritage and whatnot. And in our zip code in particular, uh, it's real prominent um, black family presence. And, and so there's, there's a lot to say there about an 85% white church in a, uh, in a very prominent a uh, black neighborhood um, and then gentrification plays a role in that. It's a lot there, but all that to say, we definitely pursuing it and uh, trying to have uh, wisdom and, and doing that well. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, what denomination is your church? Uh, Presbyterian church in America. So PCA. Don't PCA. throw anything at the screen. I, uh, I was in a PCA church for about nine years, and so I, uh, I know the strong reform covenant theology um, uh, background. 
Uh, a yeah. lot of, I think all of our pastors came from Covenant Theological Seminary. Okay. Um, it was a strong emphasis. You know, Brian Chapel was the textbook for preachers, you know. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, tell us a little bit about that experience. You know, I know it was right there in your backyard, um, but, but what was it like going to a primarily... Um, you know, white institution there as a, as a young black man. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the encouraging aspects of, of that education? And, and, well, and then also maybe was there some challenges uh, to going to primarily white school? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And in some ways, my experience is a bit unusual because I, uh, so when I went to seminary, I went in and had zero intention on building community uh, with the students there. I mean, I was, I was from St. Louis. I had my church, I had my friends. And a lot of people, when they come to seminary, they're coming in from out of town. And often uh, the seminary is their place of support. And they try to find a church in the area. And it's often connected to that seminary. And that seminary is off, you know, very well. All those, all those kinds of complexities that makes it really hard to, uh, to build community and feel supported. And I remember going to seminary and had mentors of mine. So, I, you know, I'm a son of the black church. So most of my church experience has been the black church, uh, particularly National Baptist Convention. Um, and uh, my mentors would, would tell me when I was preparing to go to seminary, say, you go there and you get what you need, uh, but you make sure to bring that home. Um, and so there was this kind of caution towards uh, not getting too lost in all, all of that stuff. Um, and so I, I kind of went into seminary and kind of had my, uh, had held people at a distance in some ways. And it wasn't necessarily animosity. It was just, um, uh, I'm good. I have all the friends I need. Um, and, uh, you know, Brian Chapel was my preaching professor and, uh, an incredible man, very wise. And yeah, I, I learned a lot from him, but he didn't actually teach me preaching. The black church taught me preaching and, um, what, where I think Brian Chapel was helpful is that it kind of helped me refine my preaching so that it's accessible to, to white people because <laughs> white people listen to sermons, often listen to sermons very differently from black people. Um, but I think where things changed for me, well, there's several checkpoints, but uh, a big one in seminary was about halfway through while I was in seminary, I took a class called Cross-Cultural Communication. It was taught by a 65-year-old British white man and in that class, he, uh, among other things, shared about the, the gospel call of unity and racial reconciliation. And it was in that class that I felt convicted uh, to, to really see the church be a better reflection of its neighborhood and be a better reflection of the kingdom of heaven. And that uh, the church is still pretty institutionally segregated, even though it's not legally segregated. Um, and so it, if we're really going to uh, transcend that, there, there needs to be some, some gospel intentionality and attention on that. Um, and so that kind of set me into a journey of racial reconciliation and cross-cultural ministry. And I started actually uh, seriously uh, engaging my white brothers and sisters in friendship in a way that I really hadn't before in my entire life. Um, and so I, I felt uh, convicted to, to have my friend groups uh, reflect the complexion of heaven. 
um, and realizing that uh, sanctuaries reflect dinner tables. Uh, so if you have an all-white church, it's because you tend to have an all-white dinner table. Um, that people come to church based on relationships. And if your relationships are all white, you shouldn't be surprised if all white people come to your church. Um, but it's, it's been interesting to see how disconnected people feel uh, from that reality. You know, they think they can have a cross-cultural church and keep a white life or an all-black life. It's like, that's just not going to work. You're kind of um, uh, working against yourself there. So, uh, so yeah, so Covenant was an incredible experience, and I loved it, and I uh, met incredible men and women, um, and there definitely was the cultural isolation uh, that many, in particular, Black people feel uh, going to seminary, um, but I had a really strong support system outside the seminary that helped me to stay grounded and calibrated. So what made you... I'm I'm not sure if you if you mentioned this, but what made you choose Covenant? What made you choose that school, of all mm -hmm. the, you know, schools all over the country? Mm -hmm. Why that school? Oh, was it because it was in your backyard? It was local. Is that is that why, Evan? Yeah, I mean that's kind of the big reason. So I so when I decided I wanted to go to seminary, I had no idea what looking for a good seminary meant, uh, and I was a religious studies minor. And I remember going to the department chair at Mizzou and, and asking him for recommendations. And you could imagine the kind of recommendations he gave me at, a, at an institution like Mizzou. Uh, he gave me some, some pretty terrible recommendations. So I was kind of at a loss. I wasn't sure where to go uh, for seminary, but I had a close friend that was also from St. Louis. I was also a student. He had decided to apply to Covenant. Um, and he said, hey, I think this school is great. Here's the theological distinctives. I think you would you would enjoy it, and it's you know at our hometown. Um, I I had never even used the word Presbyterian before uh, looking at Covenant, and I know nothing about what it meant to be a Presbyterian. It was one of those church words that didn't mean nothing. Episcopal here, Presbyterian here, um, and so there wasn't anything uh, unique or particular about the school. Even though I look back and I'm very thankful because Covenant is as a uh, fairly a respected school. Uh, but for me, it was, I want to find a seminary that, that feels theologically sound, uh, at least what I consider theologically sound. Uh, and the fact that it's close to my home uh, really helps while I'm still learning how to adult <laughs> as a recent graduate from college. So, so I could have just as easily landed anywhere or somewhere else. Uh, but, you know, by God's providence, I ended up there. Can we talk a little bit about just the, the, the reform distinctive with uh, um, the, uh, I know Tyler has mentioned um, how, you know, both of us came, I came from a PCA background. I grew up Catholic, but um, I got saved in high school. And then when my wife and I got married, um, we got invited to a church by some friends and it was a PCA church. And we, we stayed there for nine years until we moved away. And then when we moved away to Chicago, the church we landed in was a reformed church. And then, you know, and so we, we come from that background. Tyler does as well. Yeah, I grew up Catholic as well. Um, uh, Nebraska's heavily Catholic. There's a lot of uh, Catholics. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I got into a church after getting involved in crew as a student and coming to faith through crew. Uh, yeah, I went to a, a heavily reformed church which I appreciate a ton. Uh, I just learned a ton about the gospel. And, uh, but I, 
when I was kind of in that tribe or in that tradition, uh, I loved using the Reformed uh, label, saying, I am, re uh, I am Reformed, and, and sort of held that label pretty strongly and flew that flag. Uh, but then as, as I began to have conversations with Pastor Jay about merging our churches and becoming multi-ethnic, uh, I just quickly found out that the, 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 the leaders of color that I knew around here in particular uh, didn't like using labels, uh, didn't like a reform label or charismatic or, you know, like just didn't like labels in general. And so that was kind of a new revelation for me. And so uh, talk a little bit about that, Evan. Why, why do you think the um, like leaders of color aren't so quick as, as, as maybe the majority culture to, to use labels? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, so I want to be particular here uh, because there's uh, there's something particular about the Black church experience that makes Reformed language challenging as opposed to maybe my Asian brothers and sisters or Hispanic brothers and sisters. Um, because the, the Black church has a rich heritage and tradition, uh, and it was birthed out of a reaction to white supremacy and racism, that there would not be a black church if racism wasn't part of the very fabric of the country. Um, so black Christians wanted to be unified with white Christians. They, they wanted to be under one roof. And the white Christians said, no, if you're gonna be here, you're gonna be in chains in the balcony. And the black Christian says, no, that's not biblical. And the white Christian says, well, we disagree. And hence we have 400 years of separation. And so I think there's, there's kind of two layers to the challenge. Uh, one is because there's a tradition and a heritage, uh, Black Christians are often discipled into a certain type of language. And so if there's language that's foreign to the Black church tradition, um, there's at, at best confusion and at worst suspicion, especially if it's coming from kind of white church language, uh, because we know very well how white language is weaponized and white church language is weaponized. Um, you know, long history of slaves being catechized to, to believe that the Bible taught that slavery was okay. Um, and so we, we, black Christians that were raised in the black church tradition are often looking for a certain language, right? So, you know, you hear things like, you know, God is good. And the common response is all the time and all the time God is good, right? Um, or uh, he may not come when you want him, but he's always on time or, uh, you, you get up before the congregation and say, you give an honor to God who is the head of my life. Like there are these isms, there's this language uh, that uh, is often transcendent in particular to the black church tradition. And, and the ideas of reformed theology are actually pretty inherent in black church tradition. I mean, when you're an oppressed person, when you're an oppressed people, the notion of the sovereignty of God uh, that's not a hard sell. Uh, you, you, you want to, you need to believe in the sovereignty of a God when you, when you lack power. Um, but I think the, the other thing that is the challenge is uh, Black church and Black Christians tend to have an aversion to wanting to be uh, assimilated uh, by white Christians and white culture. And so there's often a reaction against. And so, uh, and we do that because many white Christians do not know the difference between being biblical and being white. 
Uh, and so they're, they're talking about some perspective that they have about the Bible and they're just saying, well, I'm just being biblical. And if you don't like it, then I'm sorry, you're not biblical. And they have no concept for how their whiteness actually impacts. It actually creates a lens by which they understand the Bible. That theology is man's thoughts in regards to God's word. It's not God's word. Um, and so when you assume that your theology is just biblical and you have no understanding of how your culture and how your experience impacts that you fail to see where there is lack where there is more to to understand about god and then there's a epistemological arrogance there um, and so a lot of times when black christians are resisting a word they're not resisting the biblical idea they're resisting all the white baggage that white Christians are trying to impose on the black Christians experience. Uh, and so <clears throat> there's uh, a lot of suspicion about certain words because certain words have been used to weaponize against black Christians for hundreds of years. Um, and so a lot of white Christians that come and say, I'm reformed and they mean all these different things, uh, not realizing that, waving that flag while biblical as it may be also comes with a cultural assumption and perspective that might not fit well in the black church experience and when that conflict comes if you're not aware of your cultural lens and perspective you will assume well the black church then needs to change because i'm trying to give them biblical perspective and they just can't acquiesce and it's like no it's that you don't know that you have a culture that also needs to be redeemed, even in your wonderful theology. Um, and so the, the, some of these words are just, uh, they're foreign to black church tradition. And, and there's a lot of suspicion there because there's, there's throughout history of America, there's always been this insertion of this word means this, right? When the Bible says this, this is what it means uh, with no understanding of, uh, the cultural baggage that you're imposing on people. So there is a lot of resistance. And I think there's, uh, it's, I think it, it's important to really consider how then do you use appropriate language to communicate biblical ideas. Uh, so for me, people talk about, I had this ref, quote unquote reformed conversion. And I, I saw reformed theology and it changed everything. I really didn't have that. I, I, and I, I was definitely in the black church tradition um, when I came to Covenant and I heard about Reformed theology, yeah, there are some things that um, were refined, but the notions, those are things I, were ta I was taught. It just wasn't that same language. It just didn't use those words. Um, and so I, I think we have to learn better how, how to speak and also how to listen uh, to ideas. That's really so good. good. There's so much to unpack there. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about you had early on, you said that when you were about to go into Covenant uh, Theological Seminary, that your your leaders in your community um, said, you go and learn what you can, but bring it back home. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so talk about that, about how, uh, you know, how's that, how's that, how's that work? You going into a predominantly white theological institution, um, experiencing what you know Brian Lawrence calls uh, Loritz calls uh, theological gentrification, right? Which is some of the stuff you were talking about. Uh, what's it look like for you to learn what you can and then bring that back home into the into the the black community, the black church, 
Um, whereas Brian Loritz uh, says in his book that he felt when he went into a predominantly white institution, he felt this, uh, and correct me if I'm stating this wrong, because you guys read the book too, um, that he felt like he had to go in and save yeah. his community. Say He had to save the black church. Uh, talk a little bit about that, about um, you know that that lens, that view, and compare contrast with what your leaders told you. What's that look like? Yeah. So uh, again, I feel like uh, some of them, my, my experience might have been a bit unusual because uh, I was already at home when I started going to Covenant Seminary, so I felt like I was more rooted. Um, but now I am at a church that's predominantly white, and uh, still, you know, you got to make sense of that as a black Christian. And uh, I think uh, f- for when I, when I hear Brian was talking about that, that makes a lot of sense. I hear that so often from black Christians that they go to seminary, get this education, they get these words and it's fine tuned and they don't hear that uh, refined way of saying things. And they assume, oh, well, then you're less biblical. And let alone we got issues with like you know, TBN and the word network being uh, pointed to as um, depictions of the black church, which is not, uh, but people often point at them and say, that's the black church. Um, and, and I often equate it to what happens when, um, when Christians go to secular universities and they encounter professors that are atheists and hostile and all this and that. And because these Christians were not uh, trained in their faith well enough, they, they assume that because this person has a PhD, because this person is experienced, because this person has explicit formal authority, well, then he must be right. Um, and, and they are not given the tools to interact with uh, these ideas. So, so as to say, no, Christianity is not anti-intellectual at all, um, but this person with a PhD is saying so. Uh, how then do we make sense of that? I feel like it's the same thing with seminary, that any Black Christians, they go into a seminary and they see these wonderful men that are well-meaning and articulate and have PhDs and have a lot of experience. All their experience is white church. All their education is white church history. All their reading is white books. And they have, they really don't have a concept of whiteness. They think they're just being biblical. And then they come and they educate you uh, and they, they give you uh, this lens and this loaded framework and you receive and say, oh, well, my black church growing up didn't say like that. Uh, and nobody in that church has a PhD. So uh, maybe I need to help them out and help them to get more refined. Like I'm getting refined in this seminary context. And, um, and then there's uh, very damaging uh, arrogance that, that happens and a loss of um, identity that, that, that takes place there. And uh, I think it is very common and there just needs to be uh, a more explicit understanding of that being the dynamic. Um, but I also think, and so Brian Lewis talks about um, how what, what contributes to that is like conferences where it's mostly white speakers and, and books that's mostly white men or, and uh, people just don't bring in black preachers, black theologians. And so people assume that they're not there. So I think that's fair. And I agree with that um, when you're assessing white evangelicalism. But I know that for me, when I was uh, growing up in the black church, uh, I did not know nothing about Tim Keller, John Piper, John MacArthur. We weren't 
talking about them and we weren't talking about going to their conferences. Uh, we were talking about going to EK Bailey's conference in Dallas. We were talking about, uh, going to, well, it wasn't back then, but if it was now the HB Charles conference, we, I mean, we'd be talking about going to Megafest with, with TDJ. It's like, like these were the platforms, uh, that we were thinking about that we were talking about. We're talking about the citywide revival. Uh, right. So we, we just, uh, there, these worlds were often very parallel, and so when you talk about including Black voices, uh, this kind of cross-pollination uh, in these parallel worlds, there's no frame of reference for that. Um, and then I think that's particularly hard for Black Christians that are cross-pollinating, that they're going into this white world uh, and they're seeing Gospel Coalition Conference and T4G and uh, you know RC Sproul and these people are lifted up as... Um, as champions in the faith um, and not seeing either they're not seeing black leaders or they're seeing the same two or three black leaders at every doggone conference and and people are assuming oh well, I guess there's only two or three black Christians that know how to handle the word uh, but really it's just uh, a laziness of white Christians of not knowing the, the the rich presence there is of faithful black preachers uh, and so I, I think there's I think it does boil down to, well, it might be overstating it a bit, but I think there is some level of laziness, but also a complete lack of awareness of, uh, of this other world that has been in full swing for hundreds of years and has not been acknowledged, has not been tapped into. And so people assume offhand that there's nothing there to learn from God. Um, uh, so yeah, is that, we have to is, really engage that. As you know, when I was um, carried the reform label uh, more heavily, you know, one of the things that, that that I would say and others would say often is, "Hey, we need to read dead guys. Uh, we need to to read people that aren't a part of our culture that came before us, so that they can speak into our culture." And so I just want to affirm that that that's that's good to to have the the awareness, the self-awareness that, hey, we might be getting it wrong and therefore we need to listen to people outside of our, our, our time period to speak into this time period. Um, but I never thought about it in terms of, um, I need to have black leaders and Latino leaders, the black church, people outside my white culture speak into the present white culture, the majority culture. And if we had that mentality, that would go a long ways. Because yeah. it's just, it's, it's um, interesting to point out the obvious that there's, uh, black and Latino and Native students that are coming into seminaries and then leaving without ever having read a textbook from a black or Latino author, um, that, that that happens, that, that exists. And that is uh, detrimental uh, to, to only be reading white theologians. Uh, you're gonna be missing something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's even, it's, it's more damaging than that. It's not simply a lack of exposure, it's, it's also a a false narrative right so you you hear about augustine and you don't acknowledge that he's black you 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 hear about athanasius and you don't acknowledge that he was black i mean he was the black dwarf he was dark he was so dark they had to nickname his darkness uh and so there and and i have heard over and over again white theologians talking about these men talking about these people that have contributed uh, talking about I mean, Africa was the center of Christianity for for centuries, and they they th they see that and they think that it is irrelevant 
to acknowledge that and irrelevant to give voice to that and irrelevant to contextualize that, which is baffling to me because you learn church history and you learn it because you understand that we are, uh, we are not in a vacuum that our faith has developed over time. And there's a context for that and acknowledging that actually helps us understand how we have come to the theology that we have. And so when you, uh, whitewash the contributions of black and brown folks in church history, you think you're just uh, just being neutral, but you're actually being a white supremacist. You're, you are giving a narrative of the supremacy of white contribution. I mean, I remember a story of uh, a prominent white pastor, white theologian, uh, church historian came to a black a preaching conference uh, and was sharing about all the great things that John Owen did and Jonathan Edwards did and so on and so forth. And I remember he, there was a Q&A time and one pastor raised his hand and said, why don't you ever talk about the contributions of, of Black preachers in church history? And this man basically said, uh, because I'm just trying to share history. And according to history, these are the men that contributed to it. Basically, I don't talk about other people contributing history because white people are the ones that can that contributed to church history uh and you could have heard a pin drop in the room uh in his just completely arrogant and ignorant answer and needless to say he didn't come back to the conference but uh this was a prominent nationally recognized man saying that white people are the ones that have upheld conservative biblical Christian tradition and so to be biblical we're just letting the cards fall where they may and so it's not just a, a a lack of engaging it's also giving something that is simply not true and as and that is actually damaging to the psyche of people of color because you're giving them something that is actually dehumanizing what is a rich heritage uh, that they come from and it's also truncating not just the gospel, but the spiritual maturity of all of his hearers mm-hmm. of the white church. It's, it's, it's truncating their maturity because mm-hmm. you're not able to experience the fullness of what, uh, of what the family of God is. You know, um, it yeah. just kind of gives you like this narrow focus, this narrow view that's only one-sided. It doesn't give the full, full orb view. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot there, man. There's a lot there. So, um, oh, go ahead. Uh, Evan, so as you talk about history, it makes me think of something that you, yeah. you shared with me um, and shared with us yeah. in our, our pastor's cohort as we were reading through Brian Loritz's book, Insider Outsider. Uh, you said there's a difference between American history and American mythology. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that really struck me. And, and I asked you to explain what, what you meant. And so can you just, for our listeners, explain that concept of American history versus American mythology? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the classes I took when I was in high school was, was Greek mythology, and I really enjoyed Greek mythology and, and learning about it. And I didn't do a deep dive in it after that semester of, of learning, uh, but it was really cool uh, to see how kind of Greek mythology talks about history and how the world works and what reality is. And so in Greek mythology, Atlas is the one that's holding up the world. And in Greek mythology, Zeus is, uh, is the source and the bringer of, of thunder and lightning. And uh, you, 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 you learn about 
reality, but you also engage with Greek mythology with an understanding of like, this is an actual accurate history, even though it's reporting on historical events. Uh, and I, I use that same kind of terminology when uh, I think about what we often call American history, that for my education in American history, uh, it was more so a American mythology, that it was giving accounts of historical events, but it wasn't actually giving historical reality. Uh, and so uh, we, we learned about Christopher Columbus discovering America. Like that was actually taught to us that Christopher Columbus discovered America. And I'm sure millions of people were educated in the same way. That's why we used to have Columbus Day. Even though historical reality is Christopher Columbus was a genocidal maniac and you can't discover something that's already claimed and having been lived in. Uh, not a single Native American would agree with the historical account that Christopher Columbus discovered America. Um, and it's other things like that. I learned that George Washington had wooden teeth uh, as opposed to actually he ripped teeth out of um, the mouths of slaves and put them in his own mouth. Um, and over and over again, we, we see this uh, mythologizing of historical events, uh, you know, talk about the Declaration of Independence and we talk about it as though these men signed this and wanted everyone uh, to be self-evidently uh, created equal, knowing that these men owned slaves, knowing that these men were writing this on the land stolen uh, from slaves, knowing that uh, women weren't a part of that. Uh, but that wasn't part of the historical lesson. And leaving that thing out, and I think they, they leave it out because of, of, of American triumphalism and exceptionalism. And we don't want to talk about the ickiness. We want to talk about how great America is. Um, <clears throat> and so... Uh, over and over again, even Abraham Lincoln, old honest Abe, you know, the great emancipator, uh, he, is, he is documented several times saying that he did not care about slavery. He, he did not think that slaves even had the same value uh, as citizens, but he strategically chose emancipation because he thought that that was the only way to keep the union together. Um, but you, you talk to people, historians like Mark Charles, who's a Native American theologian, and he says, for the Native American people, probably the greatest blessing for Native Americans was that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated because he did so many genocidal things to Native American people. We didn't learn about any of that in our history lessons. Hmm. Yeah, and he and also, so uh, people, he, he also uh, uh, asked for an estimate to, to ship all of the, the African Americans back to Africa. Like he was, right. uh, but it, it cost too much. And so he ended up not doing it, but you know, he was just, Things like that right. that we'd never heard about. Right. And so when I hear people talk about, uh, especially on the topic of racism, you know, they talk about history, they talk about slavery, like it's talking about Narnia or Lord of the Rings. I like guess this distant historical event that happened a long time ago and to try to make any connections to the present today is just wrong. We need to get over it because nobody is enslaved now. Uh, I pity those people. Because I'm sure they're saying that because they were given American mythology and not American history, that they have no idea the historical and ongoing impact that slavery has had on this country, uh, on up to Jim Crow uh, 
and even and even you know when the civil rights act is like like is that is that when racism ended it just magically happened when people signed the pen 965 they just have no sense of how his history is actually impacting the present in many ways and it's not actually history if it's still ongoing always and it's the same with the church uh, i've met so many christians that you know, are in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, and they have no idea why the Southern Baptist Convention is called the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, they, they have no idea that the single greatest theological point in this country that split denominations was not about baptism, was not about speaking in tongues, was not about women as pastors. The single greatest theological point that split denominations was race that there would not be a National Baptist Convention and Southern Baptist Convention had it not been for race. And it's ongoing with Methodism, it's ongoing with Pentecostalism, that, that the majority of the denomination splits was over, do we think that black people are actually human? So, so I have a question, um, because I, there's a book called Thanks for the Feedback um, that I always recommend, it's by uh, Doug Stone and Sheila Heen. And in it, um, she, they, talk about, um, uh, they define identity as the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. So mm -hmm. identity is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And the, the whole book is about how we receive feedback. Um, and, you know, whenever you give feedback, you always feel like the person you're giving it to doesn't receive it well. When you receive feedback, you always feel like the person giving it to you doesn't give it well. Right. Um, and, and they identify some triggers of why we push back when we receive information or feedback um, that that um, it triggers us emotionally and intellectually. And those triggers are um, truth triggers. So what you're saying flies in the face of what I know to be true. Um, relational triggers. Um, so that can be um, I don't know you. And so what you're saying um, can't be trusted, or of course you're saying those things. Um, you're black, so you believe mm -hmm. that, and so right. Um, and then identity triggers of if what you're saying is true, what does this say about me? Mm -hmm. Going back to the identity, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. So um, some of the things that that we just discussed can be pretty um, triggering for uh, for the white community in particular especially if they've been living and, and experiencing the world through a particular lens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they're hearing some of the things that you're saying, some of the things that we're discussing, and it can sound or come across inflammatory or, tr mm -hmm. or triggering. Yeah, that's good. So um, what advice would you give to, um, to our hearers? These are men, women who, um, that would empower them or equip them to multiply diverse disciples diverse churches lead in that context and have these kind of conversations while navigating those trigger points. So can you just speak on that a little bit? Yeah, well, um, I think what, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, in the midst of all of this, um, I'm assuming that many of our listeners are okay with the reformed label and um, they're not kind of resistant to that. So, I think part of what it means to be reformed is uh, having some kind of theological understanding of total depravity um, and acknowledging that as a biblical idea. Uh, and so if, 
if the the notion of sinful if the notion of sinfulness comes up uh, if if there's a defensiveness towards a, a acknowledgement of sinfulness, I think I would encourage that person to be curious about that. If we truly believe total depravity, if we truly believe that we have the seed of any capacity of sin within us, uh, say the, the intervention of the Lord, uh, we should assume that there is sin in us, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So at the very least, we should be open to the idea of uh, sinfulness, especially if we're looking at a system or a person or people that aren't actually saved. Um, and so I think uh, I, I would acknowledge the defensiveness as, uh, as valid, but I also think of uh, Galatians 6 that says, uh, bear, bear with one another each other's burdens. Um, and the context of that is talking about the reality of sin. Galatians 5 is going in about different works of the flesh and uh, keep in step with the spirit and you won't gratify desires of the flesh. And then he pivots in chapter 6 and says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore that brother, uh, but take care of yourself lest you fall into to temptation and bear with one another's burdens. Um, and so... Uh, I think the the call, Galatians 6 and the gospel in general, is to make room for there to be sin, specific sin, in your community. Uh, that we have to let go of American exceptionalism and triumphalism. We need to believe what the Bible says about us, that, that there is sin and the righteousness that we have is not in anything that we do. It's not in anything that we think. It's not in anything that is in our intentions. It is in Christ alone. And if we're really secure in that, if our identity and if our truth is defined by what Christ has to say, uh, if there's anything that comes up in terms of accusations or in terms of uh, confrontation, uh, we should allow it to be a given. I might be as sinful as you say. That's very possible because the Bible says that I have the potential for all kinds of sin. I mean, look at the biblical characters and the things that they did, murderers rapists. I mean, they, they did awful things, uh, and yet the Lord used them and was faithful to them. Uh, and we, we miss the scandal of the Bible. We miss the scandal of grace. And there's still something in us that wants to be justified by the works that we do. And so if we concede on any measure to saying that we have contributed to unpopular sin, like we're okay with, with other sins that are uh, that are okay and acceptable in our culture. Uh, but racism is, is a word that can be very like no-no and cancel culture-ish and all of that. Um, but if, if it's possible uh, that, that we uh, could be contributing to that from a biblical perspective, I don't think we should be dismissive or defensive of that. Uh, even in my own heart, like just, just because I'm black, that doesn't mean that I don't have uh, racist ideologies given to me, um, internalized racism, uh, racism towards white brothers and sisters. Like I said earlier, uh, I didn't intentionally engage a, a non-Black person as a friend until I had graduated college. Um, and there, there's something that I missed in that. There's a self-protectiveness, uh, a pride in that, that I had to relinquish. And I think that is the 
the word of caution if you start opening yourself up to the notion of multi-ethnic ministry. But if you open yourself up to multi-ethnic ministry, what that means is, is that you are going to be confronted with a complexity of, of sin that you had not considered before. Because in a homogenous church, you have homogenous sin patterns. Uh, and so you are not confronted on things that is not part of your homogenous culture. And so if you are introducing other cultures, that should mean that your culture is going to be confronted. That means that you're going to be confronted in ways that are, that are particular from this other cultural perspective. Uh, and that's hard to sort through. But also that's the New Testament. Like Paul was writing letters to New Testament believers because it was a multi-ethnic church trying to figure things out. Uh, are, we, are we supposed to eat this meat or not supposed to eat this meat? What am I supposed to believe uh, about these different things? Are, are Gentiles really a part of the, the church? Or, there's all these things happening because they were together trying to figure out their one true faith. Uh, and so it's going to be triggering. It's going to be very triggering. And uh, it's, I don't know that it'll ever stop being triggering, but I think how you move forward is that you respond to the trigger with curiosity rather than self-protection because the Lord is the one that's actually protecting you. You are part of an unshakable kingdom. So you don't have to be threatened by ideas or accusations or anything because you're part of a sure and secure kingdom. And the gospel actually frees us to be more honest about sin because it does not depend on us to maintain our righteousness any longer. Amen. That's good. good. And just as like Christians, we get this. Like we read our Bibles expecting to be confronted by the Holy Spirit and convicted of sin. And we're that's one of the evidences of that Christianity is true is that we don't have a Bible that just paints our biblical heroes in a positive light, but it it's brutally honest about shortcomings, uh, sin. Um, and so what you're saying is we need to translate that to um, to, to today that uh, we need to allow uh, to be confronted from yeah. other other cultures and especially our history because um, because the Bible is not painted. Uh, paints people in positive light, but we see the ugly sides as well. We can learn from history and, and, and use that for our spiritual growth in the same way that we can look at our history. And so you're sharing these examples. You're not saying, hey, all our American history is all bad. All the, the people that have come before us are all bad. You're just saying, hey, we need a balanced approach to see the good and the bad so that we can learn from it. Right. Um, that's what history is there for, is to learn from. And so if I'm a part of the Southern Baptist uh, convention or an SB, coming from an SBC church and uh, knowing that the SBC was started to protect slave owners and that that split happened uh, from the Baptist denomination to protect slave owners, it would be, be naive to think that there still isn't, aren't remnants right. of racism that still exist. And I'm not just trying to pick on them, but uh, sure. that's an example. Um, but, but yeah, history can help us to, to know what might still be there in the present. Um, and so uh, that's an, a, a fantastic point, uh, Evan, that has stuck with me. Yeah. yeah, I think another thing to keep in mind with Reformed theology, like one of the tenets of Reformed theology is to understand that God is the hero of the story, uh, that, that he is, that the Bible is about him and his work, not about us and how we make ourselves feel better. Uh, if anything, if you read the Bible, we are the antagonists, right? It, it, it's, 
it's not so much the devil, even though he's definitely a problem. If you're, if you're looking at who is the one opposing the goodness and the righteousness of God, it's us. Uh, and if that's true, um, then we can, we can actually own that, uh, that, that we might actually still be bucking against the goodness of the Lord, that that might actually be a part of us, that there, that might actually be part of my sanctification process. Uh, and, and that's okay. <laughs> Uh, because God is big enough uh, to, to hold any kind of shortcoming that there may be. Uh, that, that is the beauty of the gospel, that I can actually boast in my weakness. I can boast in my weakness. I can boast in the weakness of my history. Uh, and I don't have to protect any of it because the Lord is the strong tower. He is the refuge. Um, and I, I think the, the more enraptured we get with what the Bible says about us and it says about God, it actually should soften us and, and, and not actually make us so uh, on guard. Now, that being said, I'm very aware that we're in a context where people are throwing around all kinds of words. And uh, even, even the word justice, doesn't, it doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. Uh, you don't have to spend out a day in church and have an idea of what justice is and be calling for justice. Um, and so I get that people are trying to figure out what are we talking about here? What do we mean when we're saying these words? What do we mean when we're calling out uh, this history? Are we demonizing? Are we demonizing history? Are we demonizing our country? Out of it and all of these things. And I think it's good to wrestle with that. Uh, I think it's good to to really consider uh, when the Bible talks about justice. What does it mean? It's it's not just some some liberal idea or it's not just some kind of power move. But actually, God calls for justice. Act justly. Um, and it's, it's, it's sad that justice is now a triggering word for Christians um, and makes, makes people feel uh, um, at a distance from each other because it's a very clear biblical idea. But I think that speaks to our need to really surrender to the Holy Spirit more and more and acknowledge, I don't see everything right. And I, I need to actually hold everything open-handedly so I can really better understand what is true so that I'm not actually be continuing the antagonism that is so common in the biblical narrative, in the Christian narrative. Any last questions or final thoughts as we wrap up? No, man, I, I just, I've took a lot of notes here. I think the, the, the biggest thing I think was just having, acknowledging the defensiveness and then making room uh, for sin in the in your community, because when there's multi-ethnic ministry, there's going to be multi-ethnic sin, uh, and when there's mono-ethnic ministry, all the sin looks the same, and so it's yeah. easy to overlook. Um, that was those were some pretty pretty big takeaways. Um, be curious um, and ask questions. Those are some really good takeaways. And so, Evan, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate you being with us. I'm so glad that I could have this conversation with y'all. I really appreciate it. I'm yeah, honored. For, for me, that was good, Elvin. For me, uh, my mom took a trip to Ireland uh, when she was in college. And uh, the, pe the people, the, the Irish over there, they, they commented on my mom's accent. And my mom was like, I don't have an accent. <laughs> and she didn't understand, like, sh she understood the concept there that, that we as white people have an accent to other people. And I think that's, that's huge in understanding that we, uh, as white 
the majority culture have an accent. We have our own flavor. Um, and, and so we need to do a, a good job of distinguishing between what is biblical truths, uh, what's, what's right theology, and then what else are we adding on to that, that that's cultural. And I think that's what Paul was doing uh, with the Jews, is that the Jews said, hey, we, we are God's chosen people, we have things right, we have the right theology, and Paul was trying to, to get them to see their traditions, their, their, their accents, to try to, um, to, to unpack that so that they could actually merge with and be in one church with the Gentiles. And so I think that's, that's a great lesson that you brought up today for us to, to understand, especially those in the, in the majority culture, is the things that we think are biblical, uh, we may be un, unintentionally or unconsciously pushing on uh, minority friends that, that, that might not be biblical, it might be just cultural. And so we need to discern what is, what is biblical and what is cultural uh, so that we don't unintentionally ask people to conform to white culture uh, rather than just the Bible. Uh, and so I think that the seminary example is just a great illustration and, and story for us, Evan, uh, to, to realize that as you were coming in, uh, there might be this, this attitude of, well, we just, like this is Christ-centered preaching, and th it just is, it's just biblical. And you're like, no, it's, it's actually white preaching. And so I, I need to, to learn uh, how to preach to multiple audiences, multiple ethnicities, uh, and so, so yeah, I think that coming away from this conversation, I hope that our listeners and myself included uh, continue to understand how we might be unintentionally asking people to conform uh, to, to white culture, majority culture, and to, and to honor and to be curious, like you said, and yeah, listening yeah. and listening. Like right now, um, me, and, uh, me and Jameson read a book called A Doctrine That Dances uh, from a black uh, theologian pastor. And, and so for me in my own personal journey, I'm trying to figure out how uh, my preaching has has only been tailored to one culture and how I can actually preach to multiple cultures. Um, and so that's a journey that I'm still on. And so um, and so it's a journey that I invite other other people to, to, to take with me. Um, so yeah, thanks so much, Evan. Uh, we're, we're gonna have to have you on the podcast again. man you you are a fountain of wisdom uh, and uh, we appreciate you so much. And uh, wish yeah, the best. As, yeah. Uh, will you come back on in the future? Oh, yeah, I'd be honored. Absolutely. If, if, if y'all don't get too many uh, bad emails after what I said, uh, <laughs> folks, and they'll, they'll let me come back. I'd be happy we'll to. We'll send all of them to Jameson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're growing in perseverance in, in terms of emails. We're, we're doing okay. So yeah. thanks, man. We, we appreciate you so much. Peace. Likewise. I appreciate you both. See you, man. See ya.